All right, we are crawling our way through the Minor Prophets. Crawling our way through the Minor Prophets. Like I said, we started this whole study in the Old Testament back in January, I think, of 2015. So we are crawling our way. But we started last week, the Minor Prophets, and we started with this book. It's the beginning of the Minor Prophets. The book is? Hosea. That's kind of obvious, right? And she's standing on the street corner like a common prostitute. Why? All of you were sleeping last week when we talked about Hosea. Yay. Tell me what you remember about Hosea. Yeah, God told him to marry a, a woman of whoredom. We don't know if she was a prostitute before he married her or after, but God knew she would be, which was kind of a problematic, wasn't it? What else do you remember about Hosea? I mean, granted, that's the big thing, but... He had to buy her back. I mean, it's one thing to have to marry her, but it's another thing to have to buy her back with your own money, your own hard-earned spending money. Yes, and what was all of this... What was the purpose behind all of this? Yeah, it's a picture of an, uh, of an adulterous Israel that keeps turning away from God. But it's also a picture of what else? Yeah, it's a, it's a picture of, of a God that loves us so much that he doesn't give up. That he keeps reaching out even though we keep turning away. And that a God who's willing to pay the price to buy us back. Jesus. Absolutely. So it's a great book. We're going to move though into the second part of the book of the Minor Prophets. The second book in the Minor Prophets is this. Any idea? Joel. Or Jello, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, this is to help you to remember the book of Joel. The, the I want to say grasshoppers, but they're locusts. And the reason they're there is this is what the book of Joel is about. It, it, it focuses on a locust plague and what that has to teach us about God and his judgment. So this is the book of Joel. Uh, and we're going to do the whole book of Joel tonight because we won't be meeting next week. So let's dive into the book of Joel. Here's the problem for us with the book of Joel, though. We don't know that much about it. We don't know that much about Joel. All we really know for sure is what it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, which you have to be very careful when you pronounce. Uh, that's all we know. It really is. Now, his writings seem to say a lot about agriculture, so maybe he was a farmer. But his writings also say a lot about the priesthood, so maybe he was aligned with that. We, we just don't know. We don't know that much about Joel. Uh, now, we do know this, where Hosea was a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, Joel is a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, and, and he's one of the few that, or Hosea was one of the few that lived in the northern kingdom and prophesied to the northern kingdom. But Joel is totally focused on the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, so let's talk about the book of Joel. And, and, and likewise, we don't know a whole lot about the book of Joel either. We really don't. Uh, there are no kings mentioned. You know, in a lot of the other prophecies, it mentions a king. Such and such prophesied during the reign of boom, boom, boom. But there's no kings mentioned. There's no historic event. I mean, major historic event mentioned. So there's nothing in the book that helps us tack it to a timeline. So we don't really know for sure where it fits. Now, his writings sound a lot like Zephaniah. So if he was a contemporary of Zephaniah, that means you can place him in the, in the timeline right shortly before the fall of Judah, before the fall of Jerusalem. So 
If he's a contemporary with Zephaniah, he prophesied right before the Babylonians came and wiped out Judah and Jerusalem. But there are other scholars that say, no, actually he wrote this after they were exiled in Babylon and came back. So, wide variety of, of views about when Joel was written. Uh, and there's another curious thing about the book of Joel. In all the other books of prophecy, the prophet, or God through the prophet, spells out specifically what their sin was. What is the sin that calls judgment upon them? It's not happening in the book of Joel. The book of Joel does not mention specific sins. It just mentions judgment, which makes it, again, a little bit different. It's a, it's a, the book is a little ambiguous in some ways when you compare it to some of the other prophets. Now, here's what we know about the book of Joel. that The book of Joel was written, and it uses a recent plague of locusts as, as a, a teaching tool to talk about God's judgment. And, and it calls God's judgment by a specific name, the day of the Lord. It's interesting, that phrase is mentioned five times in three little short chapters. The book of Joel is just three chapters, but it mentions the day of the Lord five times. That is the major theme in the book of Joel. Uh, now, that, that day of the Lord refers to God's judgment, and, and there's actually three judgments of God, if you will, that get kind of mixed into the book of Joel. There's the judgment that comes from the plague of locust. And we'll read about that in very kind of clear, descriptive detail. Then there's the judgment that's coming through the nation of Babylon when they destroy Jerusalem, exile the people. And then finally there's a judgment that's alluded to that's way off in the future. It's kind of an eschatological judgment. Get that eschatological. I like using that word. I can't spell it. I'm not really sure I can tell you exactly what it means, but I like using the word. It, it basically refers to a judgment that's going to happen out there somewhere between the second coming of Christ and when he sets up the new heaven and the new earth. So you have these three judgments just all kind of mixed into the book of Joel. We do know that the book of Joel is about that. Now, because the book is a little ambiguous, it's kind of hard to outline, and scholars will outline the book in a lot of different ways. Here's the outline I'm going to use tonight for the book of Joel. First, there's the plague. I wish it broke into easily into chapter 1, 2, and 3, but, but it just doesn't. So you have this plague that goes from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 11. Then you have the plea, the plea of God and the plea of the prophet. That goes through chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. And then you have the promise of God, the promise of restoration. And that goes from chapter 2, verse 18 through the end of chapter 3. So that's the simple outline that we're going to use for the book of Joel. The plague, the plea, and the promise. So let's look at the first one. Let's look at the plague. Now, like we said, the book of Joel is, is written out of this context of this devastating locust plague and swarm. And uh, so take your Bible, if you got it, or your iPhone or Android or whatever you're reading the Bible off of this evening. Look at Joel chapter 1. We'll start in verse 2 and uh, read about down to verse 12. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. And what the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts have eaten. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts have eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land. Now, we don't know whether that's talking about the future, in the future where Babylon comes up against the land, or if he's just calling this plague of locusts a nation, kind of symbolically. We don't know. But we do know that it's complete and utter devastation. That's what verse 4 is all about. Nothing is left. I mean, everything gets stripped. 
Verse 6 again, for a nation has come up against my, peop- against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it is, has the fangs of a lioness, and it's laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree, and it's stripped off their bark and thrown it down, and their branches are made white. Again, talking about a locust swarm, but it's also kind of a double imagery here for for other judgment to come. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off. Why? Because they destroyed all the vineyards. The locusts wiped out all the vineyards. Cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers. Why? Because everything's wiped out. Everything's gone. Because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, and all the trees of the field are dried up, and the gladness dries up. From the children of man. This is, this is a picture of absolute, complete, total devastation in the nation of Judah. Look at this picture, or these pictures. These are the pictures that we can relate to. These are the pictures of, of recent day. These are the pictures of earthquakes and fires and hurricanes. We can't really relate to the locust piece of it because we just don't see that. But this kind of devastation that you've been seeing on the news, this is the way it would have been for them when the locusts came through. It, it, it would have been totally shocking. Uh, listen to how Henrietta Mears describes it in, in a book called what, a, what is the Bible All About? Listen to how she describes this plague. The locusts had made an Eden into a desolate wilderness. For one who has not seen it, an army of locusts is an incredible thing. They fill the air and darken the sun like an eclipse. They spread for miles over the land, armies of soldiers with leaders in front advance, destroying everything that is green. And in a few minutes, every leaf and blade is destroyed. Others following strip the bark from the trees. The people dig trenches and kindle fires and beat and to burn to death heaps of insects, but the effort is utterly useless. The land has been devastated by locusts. It takes years to recover. Their flight is heard for miles, much like a roaring fire. The land over which they pass looks as if a fire has swept through. And after the country is stripped, they go to the cities. Like mailed horsemen, they march into houses. They consume everything that can be consumed. That is her description of locust plague. That is what was happening in the context of what you're reading. And again, it's hard for us to to picture the locust plague, but we can picture these scenes that we see on the news all the time. So, because of this, because of the devastation that the locusts have, have, have brought on, Joel calls for repentance. He issues a call for repentance. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, because grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of the Lord. In other words, the locust plague had wiped everything out, so the priest had nothing to offer to God in sacrifice. So if they can't offer anything to God in sacrifice, in their minds, they were completely cut off from God. Verse 14, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. See, there's that phrase. First time he uses that phrase, for the day of the Lord is near. And, the, and, for, excuse me, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed. Now, now, as if a locust plague is not bad enough, now they have a drought on top of that. 
Listen to this, verse 17. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. Granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beast groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. Not only does he call the nation, but now he begins to call out. For the fire has destroyed the pastures and the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field, and every beast of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And remember, this takes place in a time when there's no FEMA. All right? There's no FEMA. There's no bottled water. You know, they're, they're, there's no banks to take out a loan. This, this is complete devastation. And there's nowhere to turn or nothing else to, to do. And this is why they turn and cry out to the Lord. Which is common, isn't it? We wait till we get in such a bind that nothing else can help us. And then we call out to God. And this is what's happening. But, but they're still called to repent and call out to God. But it also portrays the coming of Babylon. So look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming near. There's a second time you hear this. A day of darkness and of gloom, a day of clouds and dark, thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Okay, so now we've shifted from this image of the locust swarm that's wiped everything out. And Joel is saying, okay, let me use this to explain something to you. And now he shifts to the people that are coming, Babylon. And he says, a great and powerful people, their, their like has never been before, nor will be at, at, excuse me, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So there's a people coming. It's going to look just like the locust plague. They're going to swarm in. You'll have never seen this before. You'll never see this afterwards again. Verse 3, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. And nothing escapes them. So just like the locusts, the Babylonians are just going to come in and just completely devour everything in their path. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run. And with the rumblings of chariots, they leap on the tops of their on the mountains. Like the crackling of flame and fire, they devour the stubble. Like powerful army drawn up for battle. Now you see how the two pictures are getting mixed. The pictures of the, the locust and the pictures of, the, of Babylonians, they're just starting to intertwine here. Verse 6, before them people are in anguish and all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. Remember that's what locusts do. They move into the cities and scale the walls. They march each one on his way. Excuse me. They do not swerve from their path. They do not joshua one another. They each marches in its path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. This would have been what it looked like when the Babylonians came into town and, and swarmed them and conquered them. It would have looked just like the locusts coming up the walls, getting into the houses. The same thing. Verse 10, the earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, and the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withhold their shining, which happens when the locusts swarm too. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Interesting. This is his army. Whether it's the locust or whether it's the Babylonians, this is God's army. That's a little disturbing, isn't it? We'll get back to that. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. Third time. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? So, you move from locust 
Then you move into the Babylonians, and then it just all kind of mixes together, and it's hard to tell which is which. And, and notice that God is in complete control of these armies, the locusts and the Babylonians. How does that feel to you? Does that not disturb you? Wonderful? Wonderful? You know, it's really easy for me to say uh, the enemy, Satan, he did this. God's a good God. He wouldn't do this. The enemy did this. Or God let the enemy do this. I can say that easier than I can say God did this. You have to wrestle with that. We're supposed to wrestle with that. Now, if your children did something that deserved corporal punishment and you spanked them, you can say, well, you did this to yourself, but you're the one doing the spanking, right? That's what we're talking about. That is this in here. That they brought these consequences on them, but someone executed the consequences, and it's God. And, and if you as a parent were not afraid to step up and execute consequences for your children's actions, why should we think that there's something wrong with a God who will do the same thing? Because he will. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I'd a lot rather have him pat me on the head and give me my allowance, but... That's not how he works. All right, so, so there is the plague. Let's go to the plea. Let's go to the plea. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 2. At this point, God pleads with his people to turn back. Look at chapter uh, 2, start in verse 12. Yet, even now, declares the Lord. Don't miss that phrase. Even now. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Basically, God's saying, you know, we're right at the threshold of this, and this thing is about to ready to tip over, and, you know, you thought the locusts were bad, the Babylonians are going to be here, and they are right on your doorstep. But even now, if you'll humble yourself, and if you will turn, and if you will... In Fast and pray and come back to me with all your heart. Even now I can do something about this. Even now. That's really important. And he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Where did that come from? Any idea? Joel didn't think this up by himself. This comes from the book of Exodus. When God is explaining himself to Moses, when he's explaining himself to his people, he uses these phrases, these words. Verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation among the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. In other words, drop everything. Right now, drop everything. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is your God? In other words, things are bad, and you should drop everything right now and return to God so that he will relent and not have to execute this judgment. Is it just me or does it feel like we need to do the same thing now in this day? We are so prideful. We are so arrogant. Me included. I'm right in there with you. We are just that people that thinks this will never happen to us. 
And if it does, we, we can figure it out. We can do something about it. We're Americans. We can do something about this. We are so prideful and so arrogant. And when all God calls us to do, and he calls us to do this all throughout Scripture, is to humble ourselves and admit our need and admit our sin and let him turn us and listen to him and do what we need to do. And there's not a one of us in the planet that doesn't need to do that. And all the hoops that God jumps through time and time again and all the prophets and all the situations are just trying to bring us to that point. And so Joel says, this is like last stop on the train. Return to the Lord your God. So he calls out for this. And notice that God is not calling them back to ritual. God is not saying, you need to be in temple more. You know what? You, you, you need to be in church more, and, and you're not having your quiet times. He is not calling them back to ritual. How do I know? Look at verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, in, in, in the Israeli people were very dramatic in their grief, and, and so when they grieve or when they would be in anxious anxiety or when they would be angry, they would rend their garment. They'd put ashes on their head. They'd dress in sackcloth. And God was saying, I don't need you to do that stuff on the outside. I need you to rend your heart. I need you to tear your heart open and let me have it. I need you to humble yourself, not just on the outside. I need you to humble yourself on the inside. He's not calling them to rituals. He's not saying, come back to the sacrifices. Come back to the festivals. Come back to the feast. Come back to the potluck dinners. Come back to your Sunday school class. Come back to... He's not saying any of that. He's calling them to a deeper heart change in response to the goodness of God. In other words, if God really is this one who is slow to anger, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, why would we not come? I mean, we, we balk at repentance and, and so much you would think that God was going to give us a beating when we got there. Any of you ever tell your children this? Now tell me the truth. If you tell me the truth... And come clean, it'll be okay. And then they still wouldn't do it? Like, like no, I'm going to tell you the truth, and then you're going to beat the tar out of me is what you're going to do. I know that. God is saying, this is the kind of God I am. You are safe to rend your hearts and humble yourself and admit your sin and let me change you. This is the plea. So now we go to the promise. Chapter 2, starting in verse 18. The book of Joel ends with God promising to restore his people. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. So let's look at the outward restoration first. Start in verse 18. Here's the outward restoration. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Now, they haven't done anything yet. And they're not going to turn. That's why the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy them. But listen, he became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, oil, and you will be satisfied. All the stuff that was wiped out, I'm going to replace. And you will no more make you, and I will no more make you approach among the nations. I will remove the northerner Far from you. Who's that a reference to? Those of you that are geographically challenged, Babylon was in the north. And it's possible the locusts came in from the north too, but Babylon was in the north. So he says, I'm going to remove the northerners far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard to the eastern sea and his rear guard to the western sea. And the stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. In other words, yes, I'm sending someone to bring judgment on you. But you know what? They're not going to humble themselves either. And they're going to go overboard either uh, also. And I'm going to have to bring judgment on them exactly like I did you. Because scripture says God's no respecter of persons. 
Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, and the trees bear its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, which is important if, you, if everything's wiped out, you need some rain to get things started again because you, you know, remember you can't run down to the grocery store and get something. So if everything's wiped out, you got to wait till it starts to grow again. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army. There it is again, which I sent among you. God's clearly says, I sent the locust. I sent, I mean, he doesn't mince words here. My great army, which I sent among you. And notice it was for years. I mean, it's not like they came in and wiped everything out. And they, this was a years. Years of locusts, years of rebuilding. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of your Lord, your God, who dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never again be put to shame. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And the people shall never again be put to shame. Interesting thing about this is that it's all spoken before, way before he does it. And it's all spoken knowing that the children of, Israel, uh, the children of Judah are, are not going to pay attention at first. And they're going to go into Babylonian exile. He knows that. But he still speaks this. Now, if I was God... I would want to see them get their stuff straight before I made this promise. That's why I'm not God. <laughs> and aren't you glad? Because God says, I know you're not going to listen. I know I'm going to have to take you into exile, into Babylon. But I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to do this. This is called grace and mercy. So he, he, he promises to restore their grain, their wine, their oil remove the invaders, revive the beast and the pastures and the fruit of the land. That's all the outward restoration he's going to do. Now look at the inward restoration. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass after that, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And even on the males and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Do those words sound familiar to you? Where do you hear those words again? Peter on the day of Pentecost. Remember on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon his people. They see it in something that looks like flames of fire. They hear it in what sounds like a rushing wind. The Holy Spirit comes and fills his people. God's Spirit has always been with His people, but now God's Spirit is in His people, fills His people. And Peter says, this is what Joel was talking about. Peter is bold enough to reach back to Joel and say, this is it. This just happened. This just came to pass. That's, not a, that's, that's way bigger than the outward restoration. This is the inward restoration. And you know what? I think we get those backwards too often. I think we want, we focus on the outward restoration. We want things to go right out here. But this has to come first. The inward restoration has to come first. If the inward doesn't change, all you do is dress up the outward in some kind of different stuff. But it's still the same stuff. This is really important for us to get. This is why it's so important that we surrender our lives to Christ so that the Holy Spirit can come in and start making the change in us. That we can't. We have tried to change ourselves a million and one times. And how does it work out for us? It doesn't. We keep going back to the same old stuff because we can't do that. How would you feel about a surgeon who needed open heart surgery and decided he would do it on himself? Right? That's just ludicrous, isn't it? And yet we try to do the same thing rather than surrendering ourselves to the surgeon of Christ and let him change me inwardly and do the surgery he needs to do. We think we can do it ourselves. 
And, and this is the big deal here. So at this point, things shift. I told you, we talked about the three different judgments. Things shift at this point. At this point, it shifts to that future day of the Lord. Look at uh, verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth and blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day. There it is again of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Very important. You'll hear that again in the New Testament. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is talking about a future judgment. And it's important enough that God doesn't mince words when he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what that refers to is a calling that you can't do it. I'll never forget when I gave my life to Christ because... Uh, <laughs> Because the whole thing was completely foreign to me to start with, right? I, I wasn't raised in church. I wasn't born in church. I played in bars from the age of nine. And, uh, and my mom couldn't get me to go to church, so I had no church background. And uh, some of you have heard this story before. And a guy came and knocked on my door one Saturday and shared the gospel with me. And I, I watched enough movies to know that Jesus died on the cross, but no one had ever explained why he had done that. And so this preacher tells me why he did this. And so I wind up at his church on a Sunday, and I still don't know how I got, still don't know why I got there. I didn't really want to be there and couldn't tell you what he preached, but there was something in me that as soon as he's finished, and I had never been in a church where they had an invitation before at the end of the service. I didn't know what that looked like either. I mean, I was a fish out of water. Uh, but he finishes preaching, he offers this invitation, and I swear if I ever heard God's voice, I swear I heard it that night. It was like, Bubba, it's now or never. And so I find myself walking up to the front. I have no idea what I'm doing. I really don't. I'm just walking up to the front. And uh, I can't even remember what I told them. But, but they wanted me to kneel and they were going to pray with me and they wanted me to pray. And I had never prayed in my life. Or at least not that I knew it was prayer. It may have been. I didn't know it was. But I distinctly remember this. God, for 22 years, I was 22 years old. For 22 years, I have basically been trying to drive my own life. It's not been bad. It's not been good. It's just kind of a circle. So here's what I'm going to do. It wasn't the most eloquent or theological prayer in the, in the history of mankind. But, but I said, here's what I'm going to do. Here are the keys to my life. You can have them. And I'm going to slide over in the passenger seat, and let's see where you take me. That was it. Uh, I don't recommend that prayer to everyone, but that was it. Uh, because something has to change in here before everything changes out here. Now, I was playing music in the bars, and I didn't think I could stop that, because I love that. I've been doing that since I was age nine. How, I, I could not imagine life not doing that. But I remember telling God, if you want this... You can have it, but you're going to have to take it. I can't do this. And he did. Again, it's a, it's a confession of our heart that says we don't have what it takes to fix ourselves. All we have is what it takes to keep ourselves broken. And so somebody else has to do this. God, you have to pour out your spirit in here first before this changes. It's so clear in the book of Joel. The book of Joel will preach... Uh, and so, the last part of the book, for the sake of finishing this book, the last part of the book basically talks about that end times. I love, it talks about the valley of decision. We don't really know where the valley of decision is, but it talks about in those times, all the nations are going to come to this valley of decision. And it sounds like it's going to be a war, and, and, and it will be. But what it is is God's judgment. And, and verse 14 of chapter 3, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord. There's the fifth time. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw from their shining. But, look at verse 16, 
but the Lord, the latter part of verse 16, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Those that are, for lack of a better word, camped out in him, he's a refuge. If you're camped out in yourself, he's not. So, so this is a quick tour through the book of Joel. I want to give you some takeaways. Quite a lot packed into these three chapters. But here's some takeaways. I've not been keeping up with my slides either. Which is not unusual. Takeaways. First one. God is in complete control of nature. Now that, that's kind of like a duh. I mean, we should know that, right? He is in complete control of nature. So not to open a can of worms with just a few minutes left this evening... But does that mean that every natural disaster is an act of God's judgment? That is the wrong kind of question to ask at this time of the evening. Does it? Hmm? Could be a warning. Could be judgment. I have a really simple way of looking at this because I have a really simple way of looking at most things. Uh, the question is, why do bad things happen to supposedly good people. First of all, there's no good people, but why do bad things happen? One, bad things happen because we sin, and that's the consequences of our sin. Two, bad things happen because other people sin and splash on us, okay? And three, because we live in a fallen world and things are just broken to start with, and sometimes things just happen, because of the nature of a fallen world that is riddled with sin. Which one of those three happens in particular instance? I don't know. But I can tell you this, it should warrant us to look and examine ourselves and to, to be self-evaluative. It, it should cause us to say, God, what is this? And are you trying to get our attention? Is this just the way the world's going to keep deteriorating until the end? Yeah. I mean, it should cause us to look at that, that idea that God is in complete control of nature. All right, second takeaway. There is a close relationship between all aspects of God's creation. That seems a little nebulous. There's a close relationship between all aspects of God's creation. But we really have to understand that it, everything, everything in God's creation is interconnected. It really is. It's all interconnected. And so if one thing goes south, it's going to take other things south. You know? Don't take this as an environmental message, but if we destroy the environment, a lot of other things are going south. When God said, take care and protect creation. Care for creation. So, but, and it's really easy to divorce ourselves from that, but everything's connected. Just like there is nothing you can do that will not affect the people around you. I, was I told you this before. I was stupid enough to say to my dad one time when he did, I did something he didn't like, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with it, and I was stupid enough to say, you know, as long as it doesn't affect anyone else, I can do what I want to. Well, that was the stupidest thing in the world to say because everything we do affects someone else. It's all connected. We all affect somebody. And, and so everything in God's creation is connected people, everything. It just is. You know, if you don't think so, black out the sun for a few days and see what happens. You know? I could go on, but we got to finish this. Another takeaway. True repentance is deep. It's not superficial. It's a destruction and then a reconstruction of your heart, not your behaviors. It's really important for us to get because we think repentance is, I just need to do better. I need to act better. That's not repentance. Repentance is when you let God completely dismantle your heart and restructure it so that the things you do are different. That's what verse 13 in chapter 2 is all about. Rend your hearts and not your garments. All right. Another takeaway. God's reputation calls us to repentance and revival, not ruin. 
We have got to get that through our thick heads. When God brings judgment, when he calls for repentance, when he heats things up, he's trying to bring about repentance and revival, not ruin. Why? Because that's his reputation. We're really quick to say, yeah, God sent the plagues on Egypt, and God sent the locusts, and God sent the Babylonians. But you know, in the big scheme of things, that is like... 0.05% of what God does. That's not his reputation. That's the exceptions to the rule that we bring on ourselves. God's reputation calls us to repentance and revival, not ruin. Listen to verse 13, the latter part of verse 13 in chapter 2. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Okay, but this takeaway follows. Repentance must proceed revival. You can't get those out of order. You can't have revival, revival of your heart, revival of your life, revival of your community, revival of your nature. You can't have revival ahead of repentance. Repentance has to come first. And we try to get those out of, out of order. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. God calls us to repentance so he can revive us. And so many of us are setting the parameters on. If, if you owned a business and somebody was interviewing for your business, I'm making this up on the spot, so I hope it works. Uh, and somebody comes in to interview for a placement in your, in your business, but they immediately start telling you what they will do and what they won't do. Are you hiring them? No. But don't we approach God like that? I mean, we don't come out and say it. And so how does God revive us without repentance? It says, you know what? I'll do whatever you need to do. You know how I got into ministry, how I surrendered to the ministry? Because I got tired of fighting God. And so one night I'm walking in, one early morning I'm walking in the church gym where I was serving bivocationally because I was still working in the oil field. And And I fell on my knees, because I was just tired, and I fell on my knees and said, you know what, God, I'm done. I mean, I don't care where you want me to go. I don't care what you want me to do. I don't care what hoop you want me. Whatever it is, if you'll just make it clear, I'm in. That's all he was waiting for. That's all he was waiting for. We could have saved us, I could have saved us both a lot of heartache if I had gotten to there quicker. But that's what he's waiting. Not, God, I'll do anything you want, but... Because I used to say that. I'll go anywhere you want me to, but West Texas. Where did I go? West Texas. (laughs) I'm not saying that anymore. But we do that. We'll say, God, I'll just serve you wherever. But, I mean, remember the story about the guys that come to Jesus and, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever, but let me go bury my parent first. Or, hey, I'll follow you whatever, but let me do. That's what Jesus was saying. you got too many conditions. When you come to Jesus with no conditions, everything changes. So, repentance must proceed revival. Two more. And we'll have, to, we'll have to quit preaching. God has gone out of his way to the point of taking up residence in us to bring us to repentance and renewal. I mean, it's not like God just said, okay, you guys need to repent. <laughs> but I know you can't do it by yourselves, but you're on your own. I mean, he's gone out of his way to do this to the point of saying, you know what? I'll even slum it with you. To get you to do this. I will come in, take a residence, change your heart. I am that interested in getting you to repent. All right. We're going to have to do the last one without commentary. Last one. Despite God's love and grace and mercy, he will bring judgment on all who refuse to repent and turn to him. No, that's harsh. I know that's definitive. I know that sounds arrogant maybe. But it's true. 
Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he wants us to get this. But he can't do that if we won't humble ourselves and repent and turn to him. And this is not just a message for lost people. This is a message for all of us. This is what changes the game. Now, here's the sad thing. It didn't change the game for the people of Judah. They didn't listen. They refused. And the Babylonians came in and wiped them out. And carried them off into slavery. And they were there for 70 years. A whole generation died. Because they were not willing. I'm wondering what you and I are missing out on. And sacrificing because we're not willing. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. For the book of Joel and for the book of now. That's where the rubber meets the road. Where is it in your heart? You're just still refusing to completely repent, completely surrender, completely give up something. Because that is what God wants to deal with you about. And until you do, you're stuck. I tell you that from experience. So, we're going to close the book of Joel. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this book. This is a hard book. And... uh, and it's just way too close to home in a lot of ways. It's really easy to, to read this book really quickly and skim over it and act like, you know, yeah, good words, God's word, but it doesn't really apply to me. Everything in here applies to us. And God, would you help us to humble ourselves and to repent of our sin and our arrogance and our stubbornness and our pride and our willfulness and our self-centeredness, and our self-reliance, and everything else that we need to humble ourselves and repent of. Because we can't do that on our own. It's not in our makeup. We need you to fill us, and to stir us, and to squeeze us, and to convict us. But would you do that, Father, in whatever area we need it? And it's different for every heart in this room. But whatever area we need, would you do that in us and through us? And may we respond wholly, without any reservation, without any restriction, so that you can revive us and change our lives. Father, I've studied a lot of things, and I've been a lot of places, and I've listened to a lot of people, and I am absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that you and surrendering to you is the only thing that really changes a life and makes it different. Not just remakes it or remodels it or or spruces it up, but literally changes it. I know you've done that in my life. I know you've done that in a lot of lives in this room, but, but, but it's not a one-and-done thing, Father. We need to continue to turn to you that way. And so I ask, Father, that you would help us in each and every way that we need to this evening. Do that, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.